Jesus, my Lord. And I truly can say that. And I, I trust that if you know the Lord is your Savior, you could say the same thing. Not just because the Scripture teaches it, but you've probably experienced it as well. In fact, I know that you have. Turn with me to Revelation chapter number 19 tonight. I announced the title of my message this morning. The Lord has seen fit to give liberty to preach on this subject. I believe it's much needed in the church today. I believe there's too little preaching done on the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, I believe there's too little preaching done on the return of our Lord. And I believe it's very important. Now, I told you to turn to the book of Revelation. I did not tell you to turn to the book of Revelations, because there's no such book as Revelations. There's no such book as Revelations of St. John the Divine either. Your Bible might say that, uh, but that's just not so. The Bible tells us what the name of this book is. It tells us that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it strikes me with interest that so many should consider a book mysterious whose very name denotes the idea of openness and plainness. The very name of the book is Revelation. It's not concealment or mystery, but it's Revelation. And you may say, Preacher, do you understand that book of Revelation? Well, there's things that I have questions about, no doubt. I don't know of a single book in the Word of God that I don't have some questions about, some things I don't understand. But as a general rule, i found that if you'll study the book of Revelation literally and chronologically, you'll understand it. It's not meant to be a mystery. It's not meant to conceal anything, but it's the culmination of the revelation of God. And that's where we find ourselves tonight, the book of the Revelation, chapter 19. Verse number 11, John says, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you pray with me tonight? Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to ask you to bless your word. God, I'm not worthy in and of myself to be blessed by you. But through the person of Jesus Christ and through Your Word, I know that You can bless what takes place here tonight. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that if there's some here under the sound of my voice that are lost without Christ, I pray that tonight they'd turn to You before it's everlasting too late. And I pray that You give us clarity and understanding in this passage. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom and apply these truths to our lives. Father, we love You. And we do thank you for it. We do ask this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. 
in this passage, I want to begin by making a few statements that I believe are worth making. We live in a time when people say that the topic of premillennialism is irrelevant to the church. Now, let me say very unapologetically, very openly, uh, it's on recording. I don't know that anybody important will get that recording, but if they do, they can hear it for themselves like you'll hear it tonight. And let me say that I am unapologetically a premillennialist. Now, you say, preacher, what does it mean to be a premillennialist? Well, what that means is that we take the book of Revelation literally. We do not spiritualize it away and make it just an allegorical tale of spiritual principles, but rather we place it rightly upon God's prophetic timetable as the next thing that is to take place. To be a premillennialist in the truest sense of the word means to believe that the next thing that will take place concerning God's timetable will be the rapture of the New Testament church. We find as we study the first uh, four chapters of the book of Revelation that the church is dealt with, the first three chapters, that the church is dealt with in a prophetic sense. And it's dealt with in a practical sense. It's dealt with in a historical sense, but it's dealt with in a future sense as well concerning when it was written. And seven letters are written to seven churches. In many ways, they map out how that Christianity has unfolded throughout the ages. But we find as we get to chapter number 4 that the church is no longer seen anywhere else. Chapter 4 begins with John hearing a voice and being caught up into heaven. Now, John was a part of the New Testament church. That pictures for us the rapture that will take place, for the church is not mentioned on earth anywhere after chapter number 3. We find as we study God's Word that the rest of the Word of God, of course, is harmonious with this interpretation. You say, why is that? Because when you interpret the Bible literally, it makes sense. Now, if you try, as a lot of seminary professors and uh, Southern Baptist Convention leaders do, to spiritualize away the book of Revelation, you're going to come into a lot of theological problems. We find that as we study these things, that Paul told us of this same truth. He said that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. The Bible says that at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise. And so the next thing we're waiting for is the promise that Christ gave us in the book of Acts, that He would return again. And the angels stood and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing? He said, This same Jesus shall in like manner come unto you again. Now you say, what do you mean in like manner? And this is where a lot of our uh, post-millennial brethren, or you might call them no-millennial, I do not know. And let me, let me preface this by saying that I believe there's good people that are post-millennials. And I believe there's people that love the Lord that are post-millennialists. But I still believe it's wrong to be a post-millennialist. I believe it's wrong to believe anything contrary to the Word of God. And you say, what does the Bible mean when it says in like manner? Well, it means that when Jesus returns for His church, He'll appear the same as He did when He left. Whenever our Lord comes for us, we'll see Him as that meek Galilean. 
He'll appear the same way. He'll come in the clouds just like He left in the clouds. He'll come in the manner of His coming the same way that He left. He'll come in His appearance the same way that He left. But we find as we study Revelation chapter 19 and read of this white horse rider that His appearance is quite different than the man from Galilee, the Son of God that ascended into the heavens. I had a brother ask me one time, he said, do you believe that the book of Revelation is literal? I said, yes, sir, I do believe it's literal. He said, well, then how can you believe that it's literal when the Bible says that he's going to come in the clouds? Is he going to come in the clouds or is he going to come on a white horse? And I said, well, I believe he's going to do both, my friend. I believe he's going to do both. And as we study the Word of God, we find that the rapture is the next play thing to take place. The book of Second Thessalonians, I'll get it here in a second, amen, tells us that the church is not, now I want you to get this, not appointed unto wrath. Let me say very clearly, not only am I a premillennialist, but I am a pre-tribulationist as well. And you say, preacher, what do you mean by pre-tribulationist? Meaning, I believe the church will be raptured out before the tribulation takes place. And you say, what is the tribulation? Are you saying the tribulation, like John said, that we'd have tribulation in this world? No, that's not what I'm talking about. Because the word tribulation in the Word of God is used in two senses. It's used as a general term describing a state of existence or a state of being. Tribulation, you're in tribulation. I'm in tribulation. Those bills start rolling in. We're all in tribulation. Amen? But the tribulation is also spoken of referring to an event that will take place as well. And it's not just called the tribulation, but the Bible calls it very, uh, very various different things. It's called in the book of Jeremiah, Jacob's sorrows. It's called in the book of Matthew, the abomination of desolations which is to come. It's uh, prophetically spoken of all through the Word of God when it speaks as a woman in sorrow travailing, having a child, so the nation of Israel would be. And that's why it speaks of the sorrows upon the nation of Israel. You may say, well, preacher, what is this tribulation period? This tribulation period is a seven-year period. You say, preacher, where do you get a seven-year period? Because in the book of Daniel, we're told about 70 weeks that are determined upon the nation of Israel. Now, I know we're getting a little deep here, but you hang with me, and I'll try to be swift. That word in the Hebrew, Sheba, seven, means just seven of anything. Uh, It's used describing a week, but it could be seven of anything that's described. And those 70 weeks are 70 sevens of years. Now you say, what does that mean? It means that 490 years were determined upon the nation of Israel to accomplish God's promises upon them. In fact, that's what the Bible says, until the consummation take place, until everlasting righteousness righteousness be brought in. And the Bible says that from the time when the decree would go forth to rebuild Jerusalem, unto the Messiah shall be 483 years. And if you were to study, and I can't give you all the math on it, I can't go through the old calendars, but you'd find that from the time that Cyrus the Great made the decree to rebuild Jerusalem unto the time that our Lord and Savior went walking, were riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, it was exactly 483 years. God was dealing with the Jewish people. But we find that whenever the Jewish people took their king and crucified him, nailed him to a cross that 
God took and clicked the stopwatch on His dealings with the Jewish people. You say, oh, you mean that God's cast off the Jews? No, the book of Romans tells us that God's not cast off the Jews. But what it means is that dealing with them in a national and scriptural sense, God has ceased to do that in all these many years. The Bible spoke of the times of Gentiles that would take place. You say, what's the times of the Gentiles? That's the times when the Gentiles would run this world. And that began to take place in A.D. 70. Uh, the Roman, soon-to-be Roman Emperor Titus, he was a general at that time, they stormed Jerusalem and one of his generals took a torch and cast it into the temple. Titus didn't want that to happen. He wanted to pillage the temple, but took and cast that torch into the temple and up she went and burned down the temple there in Jerusalem and destroyed the city and laid ruin God's holy city. And from that time until now, Israel has never been in peace. They may be a nation today, friend, but they're not in peace. You watch the news and you'll find that they're not in peace. And that very place, they suppose, whereon that temple was built, it's still ran by the descendants of Ishmael to this day. This is the times of the Gentiles. This is the age of grace and the time when God is not dealing in a scriptural or direct sense with the Jewish people. But that leaves seven years, doesn't it? 490 years are appointed. 483 years have already passed. The Bible speaks in the book of Revelation about this seven-year period that is to take place. The Bible tells us that it's going to be a time of turmoil and a time when this world will reel and rock with wars and rumors of wars and nations will rise up against nations. And for the first three and a half years, the book of Daniel tells us that the people of the prince that shall come shall make a covenant with the nation of Israel. And for three and a half years, the nation of Israel will dwell in peace, but a false peace. You see, earlier in the book of Revelation, we're told about another white horse rider. You know, the devil's always been an imitator, and the devil's always been a counterfeiter. But the difference is this. The white horse rider that's mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation comes with a promise of peace. And he lifts out the olive branch to the nation of Israel, but the problem is it's nothing but a smoldering and charred stick. And soon it'll break and snap. And in the midst of those uh, seven years, uh, three and a half years, the Bible says that that peace treaty, that covenant will be broken. And when that takes place, there'll come a persecution against the nation of Israel unlike anything that this world has ever done. Oh, my friend, it'll make the nation or the Roman Empire look like child's play. It'll make Adolf Hitler uh, look like a kind man, the persecution that'll come against the Jews. The Bible says that it'll be so awful that except the Lord should shorten the days, none of the elect should survive, literally consume the nation of Israel. And uh, there's many points that I'm not going to deal with, we don't have time to deal with, but those last three and a half years are going to be difficult on the nation of Israel. A dark time. But that's needed to break the Jewish heart and turn them back towards God. All through the Old Testament, you can find time and time again, Noah and the ark is a picture of the Jews that would be preserved during the tribulation time. Uh, Jacob, as he wrestled with God and God overcame him, is a picture of Israel during the tribulation time. And much of the darkness that you read through in the Old Testament, the days of woe and calamity that would take place, speak of the end of the tribulation time. There's seven years appointed. After the tribulation begins, you say, what will it begin with? It'll begin with the rapture. After the rapture takes place, the Bible says that man of sin 
shall be revealed. That wicked, uh, that son of perdition, the Antichrist, will appear. You say, preacher, do you believe the Antichrist is alive today? I don't know. If you, have, if you want my opinion, and you know, opinions are the cheapest thing in the world because everybody's got one. But if you want my opinion, I would say, yes, I believe he's somewhere today. I believe he's living. I believe he's walking. Uh, but I do not believe yet that he has been revealed and he will have to be revealed. There's some things we gather about the Antichrist, although much of it's speculation, but some of it could be declared plainly. The book of Daniel says that he'll come solving the world's great financial problems. He'll come as a great unifier. And you promise yourself something, friend. Any time, any time that someone comes along and says he's going to bring everybody together, that's the last thing he's going to do. He's seen as a great unifier, and for a short while he will bring all the world together into a one-world order, into a one-world empire, reminiscent of the old Roman empire that existed, but much fiercer and much more wicked. He'll be an ungodly and an immoral man. Many believe that he's going to be a Jew concerning the promise made to Dan in the Old Testament that Dan would cast backwards their rider. Uh, I have a hard time believing that the Jews would follow a man that wasn't a Jew, and so I think that's a possibility, but I do not know. We do know that the Antichrist is going to be a full-blown homosexual, the book of Daniel tells us, that his desire is not towards women. I believe that he'll be a man that is an open, public homosexual. And you, you uh, tell me this, friend, has this world not been grooming itself for such a leader? Are we not in a place where we're looking for a great unifier to put aside the differences, to put aside uh, the questions, and to just bring us all together and to show a higher morality than this old black book teaches? The world's looking for that today, and one of these days the devil's going to give it to them. They'll unite under one banner. I I look around this world and I, I see a world that's being prepared for such a day. It's not long before the uh, Euro bubble is going to bust. How many of you believe that, that know what I'm talking about? Our dollar is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Sounds about time for a global currency to me, doesn't it to you? Sure, that's what this world is driving towards. We look around at the way that America has been weakened. You know, America's mentioned nowhere in Bible prophecy, not once. You say, do you believe we're going to exist? Oh, I believe we'll exist in some degree. But I believe we'll be so weakened that we'll be drawn into this one world government, be just another player at the card table, that's all. All of these nations will unite to persecute and to drive out and to kill the Jews. You know, most of the nations in this world hate the Jews. Most of them. I don't mean just a few. I mean most of the nations in this world. And I don't just mean Arab nations. Traditionally, communist nations and socialist nations have hated the Jews as well because they hate God and the Jews are God's people. In fact, America, with a handful of her allies, has been the only one that has stood with the Jewish people through the years. And I fear that that is quickly changing. When the Jewish Prime Minister, Mr. Netanyahu, can come to the White House And our president has time to go on David Letterman, but he doesn't have time to meet with the prime minister of Israel. I believe a message is being sent, don't you? You see, things are unfolding in such a way as to prepare for God's plan and purpose. 
this battle is going to get so fierce, this war against the Jewish people, but there will be a culmination. Let me preach my message very quickly to you. The Bible tells us that they'll gather in a valley over in the northwestern corner of the nation of Israel. There, uh, by the city of Jezreel, there's a valley called the Valley of Megiddo. And that valley was called by Napoleon Bonaparte the greatest natural battlefield on the face of the earth with its sloping hills and its foreboding valley. That'll be the place on which our Lord will meet His enemies. And the Bible tells us that as these nations gather together to kill the Jewish people and storm to war, and you know God has a way of showing up in His own time, don't He? I believe, you, you can call this fanciful if you will, but I picture in my mind in that sloping valley that small group of God's people that have been preserved throughout the years, gathered together, sword and shield in hand, seeking to preserve themselves against this massive army. And then all of a sudden, the clouds open. They open in a way they've never opened before. They open in a way that we've never seen. It's not just the clouds opening, friend, but it's the sky opening. And John looks up and we see the arrival of this white horse rider. Read it with me in verse number 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And who is this white horse rider? And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. John's going to describe the armies of heaven that are behind him. But whenever uh, the sight of his own human mind is eclipsed with this scene before him, the only thing he can see is this man upon a white horse. And he perceives immediately his purpose. He's there to judge and to make war. Can I tell you that though we live in an unjust world, the judge is coming. We look around this world and it's a little distraught and discouraging sometimes. Seems as though the wicked man prevails every single day. It seems as though God's people are cast underfoot and the Jews are hated. And we wonder sometimes, what's going to happen to all of it? I can tell you exactly what's going to happen to all of it. The Bible teaches us what's going to happen. The Mayans don't teach us how the world's going to end. The ancient Egyptians don't teach us how the world's going to end. But you open God's Word and you'll find the answer. This white horse rider opens the heavens and steps out upon this white horse. And John says that he is faithful and true. Why do you reckon those two names are used? Because those are the two offices that he's fulfilling. You see, this is a world that's eaten up with unfaithfulness and a world that's eaten up God's people, it seems. But yet God's made a promise to preserve the Jewish people, hasn't He? He's made a promise that their seed would never fail, that they would always have a home and a place. He's made a promise that throughout all of eternity they would inhabit the land that He gave unto His father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And surely these Jewish people are thinking to themselves it's getting awful dismal. And then faithfulness parts the clouds. And He's there to fulfill that promise that was made to Abraham so many years ago to deliver them from their enemies. But we see that He's called faithful and He's called true because this world has been put under the strong delusion of a lie, the book of Second Thessalonians tells us. You, you say to yourself, how could a man so wicked as the Antichrist be allowed to rule this world? How could that take place? Because the Bible says that a strong delusion will be given to people. Many speculations about what that's going to be. 
I know that if millions of people all of a sudden vanish from this world, you've got to have some kind of explanation. You might believe it's aliens, and I suppose it could be aliens that they're going to say is the result of it. You might say it's a multiverse or another dimension that's caused it, and uh, certainly there'll be some that believe that lie. But whatever this delusion is, it's going to be put over the whole world. And they're in this fog, this seven-year fog that they've been in following this man, seeing great and wondrous signs done, but turning a blind eye to it, seeing prophets standing in the streets and prophesying, and uh, speaking and fire falling from heaven and performing great miracles. And those two witnesses, the Bible tells us, in Revelation chapter 11 are killed. And they lay dead in the streets for three days and three nights. And the Bible says that all the world will see that take place. By the way, could you have ever imagined a hundred years ago that that would even be possible? We live in a time I could take my phone out and show you pictures from across the world. All the world will see and will rejoice over these two dead prophets. Oh, but death has never been a real big problem for our Lord. You know that? (laughs) After three days, He's going to raise those men up. They're going to prophesy. The Bible speaks of these signs that will take place, but this world's under a strong delusion. They'll turn a blind eye to it. Then all of a sudden, as the sky splits in two, truth walks out. Who is truth? Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Faithful and true was His name. The Bible says His purpose is to judge and to make war. We've been sold a bill of goods today, friend. And you say, what bill of goods have we been sold? We've been sold this bill of goods, that God is a God of peace at all costs. Can I say that God is not a God of peace at all costs? He's already paid a cost more than you or I could ever pay so that men might have a personal peace with God. But if men turn from that cost that's been paid, God will not do anything to stay His judgment. We find that when He comes a second time, He's not coming as the meek Galilean, friend. He's not coming as the lamb led to the slaughter, but as a man of war, on a horse of war, with an army prepared for war, we see the arrival of this white horse rider. Let me say, second of all, we see the appearance of this white horse rider. Look at verse number 12. The Bible says, His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns. And He had a name written that no man knew but He Himself. I like verse 13. It says, He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. You say, who is that? The Bible says in John chapter number 1 that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. It says in verse 14 of that same chapter, "...and the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. We beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father." You see, the Word of God and the Son of God are synonymous in nature. And when Christ returns, one of the key signifying tokens about who He is is that He'll be recognizable as being representative of the Word of God. And we'll speak more about that in a moment. But it says that His eyes were as a flame of fire. Fire is indicative of judgment. There was a time when men could have looked into into those eyes and seen love. Do you know that? Do you know that today, if you're lost and undone without Christ, In a spiritual sense, you can look into the eyes of God and see love. A God that loves you, that sent His Son to die for you, that cares for you. But there'll come a day 
When you look into those divine eyes, they won't appear as love, but they'll appear as judgment. It's indicative that all he sees is judgment, as a flame of fire. It says, and on his head were many crowns. I like that. You may say, where'd them crowns come from? Well, there's a lot of speculation about that we could make, I guess. Some would say, well, those crowns are the crowns of the kingdoms that he was about to conquer. I don't believe that. Let me tell you why, because those kings are probably still wearing their crowns at that point. And you might say, well, those crowns are just crowns that he has in and of himself. But why would he need many crowns if they're his crowns? One God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one heaven too, friend. As the king of kings, he would have no need for many crowns to show his authority in that sense. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, I believe chapter number 4, that uh, the elders were seated around his throne. They took their crowns and cast them at his feet. I like the exchange that takes place between God and his people, don't you? God gives us life. We live that life for Jesus Christ, so God gives us a crown of life. We have that crown and we want to show God that everything that we are is His and because of Him. So we take that crown representative of our life and we cast it at His feet. And God says, well, not one to be outdone. You know, your life was not spent in vain. And certainly there is some, the Bible says, seated around the throne of God that cried out and said, how long, how long, how long, O Lord? They've slain us, they've persecuted us, and you've not revenged our blood yet. What is the royal diadem that God will wear? He picks up those crowns as He prepares for war, places them on that divine head, and says, when I go out into battle, I'll wear your life as my crown of victory. What's the great victory of this world? It's not that God could destroy it. God can destroy the world as easy as He created the world. The great victory is not just that the armies are destroyed. He's going to destroy them with the Word and the Spirit of His mouth. That's no big feat for God. What is the great jewel in God's crown? It's the souls of those that He's saved from the devil's hell that have given their life for Him. The Bible says that on His head were many crowns. Look with me a little further. It says, and He had a name written, which no man knew but He Himself. Now, there's a lot of things we can speculate about that there again. But I want to give you something scriptural, I believe. We could look at that and consider the angel of the Lord that appeared before Manoah, the uh, father of Samson. And whenever Manoah asked his name, he leapt into the fire and he disappeared. He wouldn't give him the name. And we could look backwards and we could look at another uh, man with no name that was the angel of the Lord as he wrestled with Jacob. And Jacob said, what's your name? And he said, how is it that thou askest my name? And certainly there's probably a lot of truths we could draw from there. But you say, what is the purpose of him having a name that no man knew? Because that'll be a day when no man calls upon the name of the Lord. It's tragic. But once that time comes, it's too late. Those that had opportunity to call upon the Lord don't have opportunity at that point. They've passed that opportunity. They've rejected that opportunity. And there's no name found to call upon Him. You say, what's the significance of that? Because the Bible says there's none other name given under heaven, given among men, whereby you must be saved. Now you have an opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord, to be saved. But there's coming a day, friend, when you'll not have that opportunity any longer. The Bible says that He's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. 
I don't, I don't know if you see this yet, but I'm going to try to make you see it before we, before we finish out. You say, what's the significance? It strikes me that a man going forth to war wears no armor. Doesn't that strike you as interesting? In all of the things that this white-clothed rider is wearing, never once is armor mentioned. Or is it? The Bible says that we overcame the devil and overcame the world by the blood of Christ. You see, within that vesture is dipped an armor greater than this world could ever forge. Though the hammer should fall for a thousand years, though the steel of a million mountains should run into one trough and make one great shield, still it could not have the power of the blood in that vesture. You say, what is this vesture dipped in blood? The Isaiah chapter number 63 tells us, and I'm just going to read four verses, prophetic of it, it says, Who is this that cometh from Edom? with dyed garments from Basra, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness is the answer, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments, like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in mine fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. I believe there's two types of blood that are mingled in that garment. I believe there's the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. You say, why is that? Because he says, I trampled it alone. There was no man with me. On this day, there will be the armies of heaven with him. But on one dark day on Calvary, he trampled the winepress alone. He drank of the cup of sorrow by himself. He paid the sin debt alone. But on this day in judgment, the blood of Christ will be mingled with that blood of the ungodly men that He in righteousness and in vengeance and in judgment is destroying. You say, why do you believe He's got that vesture dipped in blood? I believe it's there to show them the reason for His coming. You say, what do you mean? The Bible says that we need to be careful lest we trample underfoot the Son of God. And certainly... If we reject the Son, there's no more sacrifice, there's no more opportunity to be saved. I believe there'll be multitudes that day that wish to cry out and say, this is no God, this is no love that comes today to destroy these armies. How can God say that He is love? And all that rider need do is lift up that garment and say, there's the proof of my love. You could have been saved if you got under this blood. You could have been redeemed if you got under this blood. But now you'll get under this blood in a different manner. His vesture dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. What's the significance of His name being the Word of God? Well, we find it a little bit further on. It says in verse number 14, The armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We see not only the arrival of this rider and the appearance of this rider, but let me say that in verse number 14, we see the army of this rider along with Him. You see, this rider does not come alone, but he has the army of the hosts of heaven with him. And you say, who is that army that is with him? I believe that the Bible tells us when it says that they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. I've heard people make this statement. I'm sure you have too. One of these days I'm going to heaven and I'm never coming back. You ever heard anyone make a statement like that? You're going to be awful lonely up there by yourself. (laughs) Let me say very clearly that I believe the Bible teaches that eternity will not be spent in heaven, but upon a renewed earth. I believe we'll reign with Him on earth, in a literal kingdom, on a literal earth. 
You say, but I thought heaven was a spiritual place. Heaven is a spiritual place. But we're not going to have spiritual bodies. We're going to have glorified bodies. A glorified body is not a, a, a spiritual thing. It's not like Casper or some ghoul walking out here. What did Christ say? He said, feel my hand. He sat down and he ate with him. You see, a glorified body is a body that's been made perfect, but it's not a spiritualized body, but a glorified body is what we're given. We'll live on a literal earth. There'll be a literal kingdom with a literal king, the Bible teaches. So these armies that come from heaven, Revelation 5, 8 tells us that the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Why would the angels be the ones riding with him? They're not going to be vindicated. Why would the angels be riding along with Him? It's not their blood that's been mingled. Who's riding with Him? It's you and I that's riding with Him. How many of you have ever rode a horse before? How many of you have not ever rode a horse? I'd raise my hand. I've never rode one. Don't worry. There'll come a day. Amen. <laughs> when we come back, we're not coming back just in the clouds, but we're coming back in the Calvary. The Bible teaches that this army is going to be you and I. But you know, we're not coming to fight. We're coming to watch. You say, why do you believe that? Because the Bible tells us how He destroys them. Look at what it says in verse number 15. We see the army of the rider, but we see the arsenal of the rider as well. It says, and out of his mouth, oh, I like this, goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What weapon will be wielded that day? Oh, it'll be a sword. But it won't be a sword like you and I know. The Bible says, the book of Second Thessalonians, that he'll destroy them with the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. You say, how can he do that? He spoke this world into existence, didn't he? You say, you're telling me the Word of God is that powerful? Yeah, I'm telling you the Word of God is that powerful. I don't know if you remember, but uh, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us that the, uh, that the soldiers and the high priests came out against our Lord. And whenever they came out against Him, there was a sign that was to be given. Judas was to kiss Him on the cheek, and that was how they were to know that it was Him. But whenever they came out, our Lord said, Whom seek ye? These men said, Jesus of Nazareth. You know what our Lord said? He said, I am He. I am He. Not just, I'm the one you're looking for, but I am the I am. When that happened, you know what took place? Those soldiers fell backwards onto the ground. Three letters, two syllables, and it cast them down onto the ground. You just wait till He preaches a sermon. Amen. You just wait till He comes in the clouds, declares His righteousness, and shows forth His dominion over this world. He'll, through the Word of God, unleash a power that this world has never known. He'll unleash a power that this world could have never imagined. The Bible says that He shall rule with a rod of iron. Treadeth out the fierceness and winepress of Almighty God. I want to show you a fifth and final thing. We'll close. Verse number 16, it says, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We find in this passage not only the arrival of this rider, not only the appearance of this rider, 
Not only the army of this rider and not only the arsenal of this rider, but finally we see the authority of this rider. Who's he that he should come and do this? I want to give you something very quickly, and I want you to remember it because I believe the Lord showed it to me. I don't mean new revelation or anything. I don't mean like these TV preachers take a fit and fall down on the ground, wake up with a new sermon. That's not what I'm talking about, but something that I believe the Lord showed me through the Word of God. I don't know if you'd ever wondered this about this story, but I'd always wondered about it. The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis, and I believe chapter number 32, about a time when a man named Jacob wrestled with God. He came face to face with the Lord and he wrestled with Him. It was what we might call a Christophany or a theophany. It was a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of Christ. He was facing a great difficulty in his life. The culmination of all the years of deception had come upon him. In other words, the chickens had come home to roost. Esau was waiting just over the ridge and he feared that he'd lose his life. And he sent half of his family one way and half the other way. Boy, you know a man has a hatred for himself when he takes two wives. Amen? Everybody's worried about these Mormons. Leave them alone. Their wives will kill them eventually. That'll take care of them. And there's enough of them to team up on them too. Amen? And kill them. But he sent his family in two opposite directions. He got alone by himself and God. And the Bible says there met a man him. The man met him. He didn't meet the man. You know that sometimes God comes and finds you when you're not even looking for Him? The man showed up, began to wrestle with Jacob. And you know what? Old Jacob began to win. He began to win. He began to prevail against the angel of the Lord. Now think of this, friend. He's prevailing against the Son of God. God in the flesh is there and He's fighting against Him. And Jacob's winning. You know what? God was letting him win. And you know what God did? God just reached out, touched the hollow of his thigh. The moment he was crippled. You know, sometimes God will let you have your way long enough till it gets you in a mess to show you that your way is not the right way. He let him win for a while. Then he just reached out and touched him. But I always wondered to myself, why on the thigh? Why on the thigh? And, you know, you read commentators, and that's sometimes it's good, sometimes it's, you know. They've got different ideas. They say, well, the, the thigh is the seat of power. And that's true. And they say, well, he touched him on the thigh to show him that in a moment he could break the strongest bone or whatever else. There's all these different ideas. You know, i got a different theory. i got a different theory. See, I think this whole business of Jacob wrestling with God goes a little farther than Jacob. Jacob was representative of the nation of Israel. You see, that, that, uh, that message about the thigh, this idea of the thigh, it's not found very often in the Word of God, but a thigh is always indicative of a covenant. And we find that whenever Abraham sent out his servant Eliezer to go get a bride for Isaac, that he made him swear by taking his hand and putting it under his thigh. And that was an oath and that was a covenant that he was going to perform that which he promised to do. And so here, God is wrestling with Jacob. He reaches out and touches his thigh. But let me tell you something. Do you know that to this day, spiritual Jacob is still wrestling with God? You say, what do you mean? The nation of Israel still hasn't turned towards the Lord. The veil is still over their eyes, and the only way it will be taken away is if they turn to the Lord, is what the book of 1 Corinthians tells us. They're still wrestling with God. You know, the Jews are a proud people. You say, that's racist. No, that's true. I don't know if you know any Jewish people, but they're proud people. 
And they can be stubborn people. I probably got a little Jew in me, amen? They're still wrestling with God. You say, what's the tribulation period? The first three and a half years is a time when they're prevailing. The peace is working. Everything's going well. They've done things their way. They've rejected the Messiah. They've strove against God. And you know what? It's working pretty good. In the midst of the seven years, God reaches out and touches their thigh. And they're crippled. And you know what they're forced to do? They're forced to go from contending with God to clinging to God. Jacob, when the hollow of his thigh was touched, he was forced to quit contending with God and start clinging to God. The Jews, during the tribulation period, they're going to be forced to cease from contending with God and they're going to have to cry out to Him. I believe the Jews aren't going to care who the Messiah is then just so long as He comes to save them. You say, well, what does that have to do with the thigh? Well, it's interesting. The Bible tells us at the end of Genesis chapter 32 and the end of that story that from that day forward until this was recorded, until the book of Genesis was recorded, that the Jews did not eat of the sinew which shrank. It was passed out all their families, this principle that they were not to eat of that sinew. They were to leave it alone and not touch it. I tend to believe, friend, that if you and I, a bunch of Gentile Baptists halfway across the world in a Sunday school are taught that, I kind of believe the Jewish people probably know that story too, don't you? Orthodox Jews are probably very well aware of that sinew which shrank. All throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the thigh is barely mentioned, just here and there in passing and fairly insignificant. And you read all the way through the New Testament. Do you know that the thigh is never mentioned? Never once is the word thigh used in the New Testament. And you come all the way to the end. And he had on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You say, what's the significance? Well, I think that little Jewish elect is going to look towards heaven, see their Messiah coming, and remember the last time that the Lord had touched the hollow of a man's thigh. And I think they'll look and see that declaration of His authority and they'll recognize that they've gone from contending to clinging. And they'll recognize that they've wrestled with God and He's prevailed. And they'll recognize that they've been crippled and cast upon the shores of God's forgiveness and grace. I believe there's significance to that thigh. And that name written, I like that, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You know, we live in a democracy in this world, or in this country at least, or we used to. I've not figured that out yet. Have you? We used to live in a democracy. Democracy is good in some ways. But you know there's a better program than democracy? You know that? There is a better program than democracy. There is a better form of government than democracy in this world. Don't get uptight on me. It's not socialism. It's not communism. It's not even a democratic republic, which I guess is technically what we are. It's not even a monarchy. It's not an oligarchy. There's a better type of government in this world, and that's a theocracy. You say, what's a theocracy? It's a kingdom where God's king. Never says he's the president of presidents, does it? I like that. You know why? You elect a president, and hopefully on Tuesday you'll elect a new one. Take it how you want it, friend. You don't elect a king. 
He's not the prime minister of prime ministers. No. When he comes, he'll hold no election. When he'll come, he'll seek no electoral votes. When he comes, the opinions and suggestions of men's will mean nothing. When he comes, he comes as king of kings. He comes as Lord of lords. Whether you like it or not, can I tell you he's coming? Whether you agree with it or not, he's coming. Whether you prefer him or not, he's coming. And whether you'd vote for him or not, he's coming. We all worry about these elections. I guess we should. How many of you have worried about elections before? How many of you did any good? But can I say that I'm thankful that regardless of what happens on Tuesday or the Tuesday four years after that, or if there even is an election on the Tuesday four years after that, can I say that I'm thankful that the authority of that white horse rider is greater and mightier and farther reaching than any kingdom of this world. Daniel saw a vision where a rock was cut from outside out of the mountain without hands. And that rock was cast into the feet of that idol representative of that kingdom that would come. The Bible says that it destroyed all the nations of the world and filled up the world. Daniel said, I beheld until the Ancient of Days did sit upon that throne. <laughs> I just want to say I'm thankful to be a premillennialist tonight. I don't know if you are. I'm thankful that the truths of God's Word are still true no matter what this world does to try to deny their heads bowed with their eyes closed. Heavenly Father, bless this invitation to your glory and to your honor. In Christ's name, amen.